Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host, and we have a great show for you this evening. I'm actually not here. Uh, well, what I'm saying is this is a pre-recorded show and I'm not here live. Um, I'm, I'm off the grid when this is airing. So um, anyway, I thought I would put this up and do a pre-record with two great guests. The first one coming up is Kevin Randall's been on the show many times. Um, he's a prolific writer. He's got a book coming out, Level End, um, about a 1957 UFO encounter. We're going to be talking about that. In the second half of the show, I invited Albert Wayne. Albert was on the show, talked about a very unusual and really credible sighting that he had many years ago. And so I invited him back because in our conversation off air, he told me there's other things that have happened to his family. And I thought his story was really so fascinating that I wanted to ask him more details. So look for that in the second half. So we'll be back live next week as usual. For now, I'm going to bring in my guest. And what? just one other thing, thank you so much for supporting the show. I don't know what the blog is going to be this week, but it should. there should be a new blog up there. And if remember, if uh, you want to find out what's coming up every week, all you have to do is go to podcastufo.com and sign up on the newsletter on the side, and then you'll know what's going on. So here we go with Kevin. Welcome, Kevin. It's always great to have you on. Well, thank you. Appreciate being here. Yeah. Being uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> here. We're not really here, but we're here. So, uh, and I appreciate you uh, accommodating this time that we can record. So you have a great book. But before that, I've I always say when you come on the show that you are one of the real balanced people out there. And I defer to you when I'm in your work, when I'm looking up something. So many times uh, you have helped me and you don't even know it. And that's by uh, writing a real balanced blog uh, and about what is happening. I'm going to pull that up right now, your blog, uh, a different perspective. And I, I just think you, again, you, you're not only helping me, you're helping a lot of people just get a real clear perspective about what is happening uh, on or what happened, I should say, in a UFO encounter that a lot of times I will look at something and think, wow, there's really something to that. And then you explain the whole thing and why there wasn't something to that. And so while I have this up here, let's talk about your, your last blog here. Um, and it's about the cigar UFO um, sightings, because I, I have kind of a, a, a story on that myself that I'd like to uh, share. But so what was, what, initiated you writing that particular blog? I'd come across a number of um, UFO sightings that had just been recently published, people had talked to me about, that dealt with cigar-shaped craft. I noticed a triangular-shaped craft has made a uh, quite a comeback. Right. Or not necessarily a comeback, an appearance. A lot of, uh, a lot of the sightings are triangular-shaped objects, and I wonder if there's not some terrestrial explanation for them because they've become so prevalent. We know with the B-2 bomber and the F-111, they have a basically triangular shape, and I wondered if the next generation of military aircraft isn't responsible for a great number of the triangular-shaped objects. But looking at this, I also noticed that the, a lot of people are talking about cigar-shaped craft or what now, I guess, has become Tic Tacs. They're somewhat cigar-shaped. So I'd, I'd uh, 
found a number of instances of people reporting cigar-shaped craft in the last uh, few months. So I thought I would just uh, provide a little bit of information about that and places where people could go to discover more information about that if that was something that interests them. Right. And also about the car stalling, because I think that is, that's fascinating. We're going to get into that as well as when we talk about your book. But, um, but there, that is a phenomenon. Now I, I love, and, and this, this, the second guest on the show, I love to hear stories that I've never heard before that it's say the average person out there, all of a sudden you, there's a happenstance. Well, uh, our, our, guest Albert happened to listen to my show because he had an interest because he had a UFO sighting. So I love hearing those stories. And I have to tell you of a situation that happened uh, when I was visiting Russia, my ex-girlfriend's father was driving through a pass and he was describing this and she was translating, driving through a pass in Russia. And then he, we drove out to the pass, real busy traffic. I don't know how this could have happened the way it did, but it was busy when we were there. Maybe it was a time of day. So he's driving through the pass and all of a sudden his car stalls and everyone else's car stalled around him. They all get out and they're pulling up their hoods. They're off to the side of the road. They're pulling up their hoods, trying to check out what's going on. And just then this huge cigar shaped craft floated through the pass. He said he looked up. It had portholes and floated through and then someone and then just really slow no noise and so someone got in their car and it started and they all looked at each other like shaking their heads all got in their car and drove off nobody talked to anyone about it i mean there's another stall case i mean well, did he did he start the car did it start spontaneously you know, that's something, if I get get a chance to ever speak to him again, I didn't ask him that question. I assumed everyone just turned the key. But there are cases where things will just start on their own. Most of the time, it takes an action by the driver to start the car. Yeah. And it's a misconception for those of us studying the, the vehicle interference cases that the cars start spontaneously. The headlights come back on. And that makes sense. The Condon Committee, the University of Colorado study funded by the Air Force, refused to look at the level land sightings, for example, or other really sightings about this kind of a phenomenon, because they could think of no way a magnetic field could stall a car engine and then have it remove the field. The car engine would start spontaneously. Somebody would have to take an action. And I began looking at the cases. Uh, Mark Rodiger had done some done a preliminary study uh, in 1985 of some 400 cases of car or vehicle interference type stories. And I got to looking through that, looking to see if there were indications of what happened. And most of the time it said, it would say, well, the car started normally, or I could start the car or something like that. Very few cases did they say it started spontaneously. In the Leveland sightings, there were people at many different locations independently reporting the craft coming close and stalling the car. And only one of those did the guy say it started spontaneously, and he insisted on that. And it seemed the others had to take an action to get their cars started. So when the Condon Committee rejected the idea of these magnetic fields, these electromagnetic effects, suppressing the car engine and stopping it. And, and there'd be no mechanism for it to start spontaneously when they removed the field. They didn't understand that most cases isn't that way. Somebody had to take an action to start the car. 
Hmm. But in Roddicker's study, for example, it's not clear exactly what happened. It's a, the car started normally or something like that. And that to me suggested that the they could start the engine. With the Leveland cases, one of the guys said that he, he tried repeatedly to start the car while the object was close when it took off. He then said that he could get his car started. So he took the action to make the car start. So that was one of the things I looked at in the, the Leveland book is did the drivers uh, have to take some sort of an action to get the car started? I see. Okay. So let's let's take a look at, um, I'm going to pull up your, your book here if all goes well, or at least a, uh, a screenshot of it. Um, and let's talk about that case. 1957, that's when that happened. Uh, was that November 2nd or something like that? November 2nd, 1957, Leveland, Texas, which is just west of Lubbock. <laughs> if you're looking for it on the map, look for Lubbock. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know Texas is so big. You really have to. You really have to spell <laughs> that out. Yeah. So uh, I love the graphics on this. And is is that this egg shaped thing? Is that sort of what uh, people were reporting? Something like they that? described it a number of ways as egg shaped or torpedo shaped. And I'm thinking that the difference is not that the object was changing shape. It just was a matter of perspective, where you were when you looked at it. And I. I it, you see those big propane tanks on farms as you drive around yeah, yeah. big cigar shaped things. Yeah. If you look at it from the proper angle, it does have an egg shape. If you look at it straight on, it has a, a um, cigar shape. If you look at it from the end on, it's got a circular shape. So I'm thinking that the discrepancy in the descriptions isn't so much the object changing shape. It's a matter of perspective of where the witnesses saw it. But most of them talked about a cigar, um, I'm sorry, an egg shaped craft, most of them talked about it being bright red or uh, that color, although there were indications some people saw something that was bluish in color. Uh, Pedro Sacido, who's the first person to have called the Lubbock, I'm sorry, the Level Land Sheriff, about his sighting, said that as it approached it and sat down close to his truck, stalling the truck, it was blue, but it turned to a bright red, so bright it was hard to look at, and then it took off in the distance. And once it was gone, of course, he could start his truck again. Wow. I was looking into the the sighting I had that really got me interested in, you know, this topic. And I saw where there was one where I saw it. I mean, a report. I didn't report it. This is, you know, back in 2007. I didn't report it. But um, I looked back then and sure enough, there was someone reporting one. But they said it was cigar shaped. And I started thinking about it. Um, because the one I saw had like a blue glow around it as well. And I was thinking maybe talk about a perspective, not talking about your blog, but talk about perspective, maybe at an angle, um, it could appear like a cigar shape. You know, I mean, I have heard that before about discs. Now, maybe I'm just trying to, you know, glorify the fact that someone else probably saw what I saw, but, um, you know, it, the yeah. angles do do change what you're seeing. There are sightings in which the uh, witness talks about the object changing shape. And again, I think if we've got a, a disc-shaped object and you see it on edge on, it may, may look more cigar shaped than disc shaped. And if it turns a little bit, then you get a different, uh, a different perspective of what it looks like. So I'm not, I'm not really sure that we're talking about objects changing shape, but we're talking about the perspective changing and that sort of thing and people not being aware of how that can influence what they've seen. Now, I saw when I was reading through some things that 
this case was classified at one time? There are indications that it was classified, yes. Now, there's a document that's in the book where you can see it says restricted. At that time, it was the lowest level of classification. Um, it was later changed to confidential and, and secret. But you can see where, if you look at the document carefully, you can see where it was secret at one time and then it been downgraded to restricted. A lot of classified material is regularly downgraded. I don't people know this. So if you've got something classified secret at one day, three years later, it may be automatically downgraded to now confidential. And three years after that, it becomes for official use only, which is really sort of a, a, a um, easy way or a normal way of unclassifying material, but keeping it out of the, the, the public's hands. It's, you know, for official use only as opposed to distribute it to the public type thing. But there's, there's nothing restricted really about seeing that, that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, there's indications that port, parts of this were classified. There's other indications that not all the witnesses were um, interviewed by the Air Force investigation. A guy named Norman Barth, a staff sergeant from Ent Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, went to Leveland uh, two or three days later, and he spent seven hours there investigating the case and then left having solved the whole thing. He talked to six witnesses uh, or six people who were, who were involved in that. I know for a fact that the sheriff, and I hate his name, it's Weir Clem. I'm thinking, why couldn't he be something like Jack Armstrong or, you know, <laughs> some, some good solid name, but this Weir Clem is really out of the... Backwoods, I guess. It's different. Uh, but but he, a, a bright fellow, nonetheless. Uh, he had to he, be. <laughs> he, told, <laughs> he told reporters the day afterwards that uh, when he had seen the object, and he, he talked about an object, a, a um, football-shaped or a disc-shaped object, that he got close enough to, to see the object. But when you read the report in the Air Force file, it says it was just a streak of light in the far distance. Hmm. And then later on, Don Berliner, who was a – a UFO investigator and written quite a bit of stuff about UFOs in various magazines and done a book or two. He interviewed uh, the sheriff in the mid 1970s, 1974. I think it, I think it appeared in a 1975 issue of uh, official UFO. And in that article, he, the sheriff again mentions having seen an object as opposed to a streak of light. So what we see here is he told reporters, um, before the Air Force showed up that he had seen the object and that sort of thing, he told uh, Berliner after the Air Force left that he had seen the object, but the Air Force report just talks about the streak of light in the distance. The other interesting thing is Don Berlinson, who lives in Roswell, by the way, um, hmm. which is about three hours away by car from, from Leveland. It's not a bad drive. Oh. Interviewed the sheriff and the sheriff's daughter. The sheriff had passed away before Berlinson got there, and they were talking about what the sheriff's seen and uh, he, through his investigations, he also found the former mechanic for the sheriff's department. And the mechanic said the day after the sightings, the sheriff brought the car in to see if there was anything wrong with it. Mm. Now, the only reason I can think he would have done that was because his car was stalled as well. So right. he got close enough to see an object and he got close enough for him for his car to be stalled. And then there's a, a, another exciting part of this. He was in a convoy with three other cars. It was the sheriff and one of his deputies. There was a car of state police. I think it's the department, Texas Department of Public Safety. And in the third car following him were a couple of officers from Reese Air Force Base, which is in Lubbock. So if the sheriff got close enough to see the object and his car stalled, 
then the state police got close enough, as did the Air Force. But there's no indications that Barth, in his investigation, talked to the Air Force officers. And I can find no documentation or records of the Air Force officers having been interrogated about their experiences chasing down this UFO. So that suggests more than just uh, um, it being classified secret, but also part of a cover-up. Interesting. Now, when something is classified administration use only or whatever you just said, is it subject to FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act? You can request FOIA for anything. I mean, it doesn't have to be a classified document for you to use FOIA to request it. But uh, the, the for official use only um, just implies you're not handing the things out. Oh, oh. But if somebody asked for it, you'd say, yeah, here it is. Hmm. Um, it's it's yeah. it's really yeah, classified material requires safeguarding. It has to be in a safe. And if it's if it's top secret, it has to be in a vault, not just a safe, but in a vault. And the, the, the safes have to have certain specifications have to be really, really heavy, like 600 mm. pounds. So it's <laughs> impossible to to move them easily and that sort of thing. But when you get to FOIA, you can leave it on your desk, put it in your desk drawer. It's just really not a high level of classification. It just kind of restricts the circulation of the material as opposed to, <laughs> uh, you know, circulating it throughout the United States Air Force type thing. But but for official use only is, is just not that highly classified. It's really not a classification per se. I see. I see. So let's go into the case from the very beginning uh, on on November 2nd. Uh, who is the first to report it and what happened? The problem we run into is the sightings began a little bit prior to the activities in Leveland. There was a couple up near uh, Amarillo, which mm -hmm. is also in the panhandle of Texas, by the way. And they had uh, they had run into a uh, uh, something sitting on the uh, the road in front of them in a fog. And it was a, a kind of a UFO type thing. And it stalled their car. When it left, they couldn't get their car started again and had to be towed into Amarillo and found out that the battery had fried. And in fact, prior to that, at three o'clock in the morning of November 2nd, um, it, near Canadian, Texas, there was a landing where the, the um, object stalled the car engines of, of two separate people on opposite sides of where the object land and stalled the car. So you have those sorts of things going on, but they didn't draw a lot of attention. The couple in Amarillo went to the police to report on it, and the police didn't even bother writing down their names. Hmm. They just, you know, they just didn't think that much about it. Although a, a, a police officer did go out to where their car would, had stalled and couldn't find any evidence. So now we move down into the the level land area. There were some farmers near Pettit, Texas, which is a very small town. This doesn't appear on all the maps um, using their combines in, in their, in their uh, farming mm -hmm. and the engines of those stalled. This was reported wow. to the sheriff sometime later, but it happened prior to that. The first case that gets widespread circulation and attention was Pedro Sacido, who was a, he's, he's labeled as a farmhand, a barber, um, that kind of thing. He's a, veteran of the Korean War, so I give him some props for that. Mm -hmm. uh, he and his friend were driving on the highway toward Level Land when the thing landed near them and the car, uh, his truck's engine stalled. In fact, the front cover that you showed, that's Pedro Cicito and his partner seeing the UFO. Well, when the thing landed, Cicito was um, installed his car. Cicito dived out of the truck and rolled underneath it for protection. And his passenger sat there sort of paralyzed, unable to move, watching this brightly glowing blue object as it landed near them. 
the car engine stalled, the headlights failed, the radio was filled with static. Once the um, object turned a bright red and took off, Saucedo got back in the truck, and I believe he started the engine then. So uh, he took an action to start the engine, as near as I can tell, by reading the various uh, reports. And he got a lot of play in the press as well, that, that it did not start spontaneously. He had to start it. But he was still so frightened by what he had seen. He didn't continue on to Leveland. He went to another town and called the sheriff to tell him about it. The fellow who took the phone call, police officer, I think his name was Fowler, didn't think much of it, thought the guys were drunk. I mean, a, a big glowing egg lands near your truck and stalls it. Yeah, I believe you. Um, but then they started getting other calls of, from other people around the area. Uh, for the next uh, two hours, two and a half hours, they were getting calls from separate locations around the level land area. And on the same highway that Pedro Sacido had been on installing his car, others on that highway came across the object and installed their cars as well. And they would call in and talk to the, the sheriff about this or talk to the police. They, the sheriff eventually became convinced something was going on. They, they couldn't believe it was some kind of massive joke. And that's when he decided he was going to go out and look for the object. The Reese Air Force Base guys were already there. And so that's why we had this three-car convoy going out looking for the object. Um, the Air Force report says he got within 900, I think, 900 yards of it. That's quite a distance. The sheriff said he got much, much closer in the earlier articles and then the later article as well when he talked to Don Berliner. Um, and it's clear that that his car stalled as well. But there were there was a um, Ronald Martin said the same thing, got close, his car stalled. Uh, there were a number of different people who did that. The sheriff said later in one of the newspaper articles that uh, he'd gotten dozens of phone calls about this as opposed to just the uh, the number that had been reported in the newspapers and the numbers reported to the uh, the Air Force and to NICAP. Now, interestingly, the, the Air Force did a brilliant job of, of diverting the conversation. And there's a letter in the um, Project Blue Book files where the Air Force says, we don't want to respond to this. We want to see what NICAP has to say first, because it's easier to respond to them than it is to put out your statement first. So they waited until... Uh, Don Kehoe at NICAP put out a statement. He talked about witnesses at nine locations or nine witnesses to it. The Air Force came out and said, no, there was only three witnesses. There are only three people who saw an object. So you see they've diverted the conversation from what happened to the number of witnesses. And if you go through the Air Force file uh, carefully, I think you can find at least five witnesses as opposed to the three that the Air Force talked about. And if you go through the other documentation, the newspaper articles and that sort of thing, you find uh, witnesses at 13 locations. I mean, designated witnesses at 13 separate locations. So they're independent of one another calling in. And there's a timeline of who called in at what time. So you can see how the thing transpired over the evening of November 2nd into the morning of November 3rd. Hmm. About an hour or so after the sighting stopped in Level Land, there's, a, there's sightings in... Uh, White Sands Missile Range. At the time, I think it was White Sands Proving Ground. Uh, two MPs on patrol up. I think they were close to the Trinity site. So they're in the northern part of the range up just south of the Socorro area in, in that area, away from Alamogordo, because White Sands Missile Range covers an awful lot of territory. And they were uh, saw something that came down, and they said it came 
uh, it came lower than the the mountains behind it. So it was, you know, the, the mountains were, you could see the mountains behind the object as it sat close to the ground. And then it took off. The Air Force, of course, investigated and said, well, these guys were hysterical because of the UFO sightings that had been discussed in Leveland, Texas, except, of course, this was 1957, and we didn't have social media, and we didn't have the news media on a 24-hour news cycle. And so they had no way of knowing that what had gone on in, in, in Leveland, which is much further away than Roswell uh, to to uh, to Leveland, it, Roswell's between White Sands and, and Leveland is what I'm trying to say in a mm-hmm. somewhat haphazard way, I guess. Hmm. Uh, but the Air Force made little of, uh, dismissed it as them being young men, easily frightened, poorly trained. I'm thinking, yeah, I, I know, because the, they were talking about them being 20, 21 years old. And I'm thinking, let's see, I was 19 years old. I was in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot and aircraft commander. <laughs> and the guy we called Pappy, because he was the oldest pilot in the unit. I mean, the oldest pilot that didn't have another function like operations officer commander. We called him Pappy because uh, he was the oldest pilot and he was 23. <laughs> and so we have we have these youngsters, such as myself at 19, uh, with very responsible jobs in the military. I mean, an aircraft commander is responsible for that that aircraft and the crew on board and, and your passengers or whatever you're doing. Yeah. And so the Air Force to belittle these guys as being, well, they were just not well educated. They just weren't well trained and they were hysterical. It's just really dismissive of that whole part of the case. I mm. talked to one of the guys, Glenn Toy, a number of years ago, and that, that information is mentioned in the book as well. And you see that they saw something that, that was truly uh, anomalous. Uh, around 12 hours later, a second team of MPs, also youngsters like that, uh, had another sighting in the area. I don't think it got as close to that. They didn't get as close to it as the first group did. But the Air Force dismissed the sightings as first Venus and later the moon. So we uh, got these MPs saying that basically Venus landed out at White Sands Missile Range. And then a couple of days later, on November 6th, a guy named um, Stokes, James Stokes, was driving from Alamogordo to El Paso. And if you've been on that road, and I have many, many times, there's a place called Oro Grande. It's a little, little, little um, town. And his car engine was stalled. But he said that as he coasted to a stop, there were six or seven cars in front of him. They were also pulled over to the side of the road. Hmm. And they were watching something in the sky. And it was an egg-shaped craft uh, swooping around in the sky. Stokes got some kind of a sunburn from from staring at this thing. If you remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Richard Dreyfuss getting the sunburn on Hmm. half his face and his arm, Mm -hmm. that's James Stokes. That's what happened to him. It was very faint. Coral Lorenzen from the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Stokes, of course, lived in Alamogordo, and he knew Jim Lorenzen. So once he got back from El Paso, he called uh, Jim Lorenzen to tell him about the sighting. And uh, both Coral and Jim Lorenzen saw this sunburn effect on his face. Uh, the, The Air Force dismissed his sighting as somebody wanting publicity. And the first thing he did was call the news media. Well, that's that's really not true. The first thing Stokes did when he got back was call his boss out at Alamogordo because he was a civilian contractor at Alamogordo or a consultant and asked if he could talk about his UFO sighting. And his boss, a major, said, go ahead. 
you didn't happen on Air Force time. We don't care. Talk about it. So mm -hmm. he called Jim Lorenzen, who called the news, the, the uh, radio station in, in Alamogordo. And that's how Stokes ended up at the at the radio station talking to it. And the, the uh, guy's name was Clark that he talked to uh, also saw the uh, sunburn effect. By the time the Air Force got there, the involved in the investigation, of course, the sunburn had faded. So there was no big deal about that. Hmm. But it's it's this whole group of sightings that took place in a very small confined area of West Texas and New Mexico, southern New Mexico, on the second uh, and third of of November. Stokes was on the sixth, and then we go back and you look, and there's other sightings around the country that came about later on after the, after the second after the news media got involved in it. One of the witnesses to the level land end of the sightings actually heard about it. And his parents suggested he call because he'd had his car stalled. His parents insisted that he called the sheriff and let them know that, that he had been involved in this as well. So that one was kind of general. You could say it was generated by the, the news media reports. But that was late the next afternoon. It wasn't wasn't that same same day. Uh, hmm. So it's it's a, a, a wide group of sightings. And it's important because you have the UFO interacting with the environment, meaning stalling hmm. the car engines. Yeah. And, and if the investigation had been conducted properly at that time. We might have learned some some interesting stuff. On November 3rd, the next afternoon, the sheriff and the provost marshal from Reese Air Force Base went out looking for landing traces. And the newspaper said, well, they didn't find anything. But according to the, the widow and the, the daughter, they did find a landing trace. It was, I think, I, I, if I remember correctly, it was north of town on a, on a, a ranch out there. And uh, Burlinson talked to the daughter of the, the rancher. It, the rancher and the daughter went out and looked at the burned area. So they saw it and the sheriff saw it. So there was a burned area. So now we have we have it interacting with the environment by stalling the car engines. We have landing traces and we have witnesses, independent witnesses reporting the same sort of phenomenon uh, over and over again in a very limited space of time in, the, in a very limited area of level land, Texas. Now, had we not spent seven hours investigating the case, but done it properly, uh, think of the things we might have learned. The Air Force finally concluded it was ball lightning that yeah. caused the level land sightings. I know of no case in which ball lightning has ever stalled a car engine. And ball lightning, if you read the literature about it, there's still a controversy whether ball lightning even exists. Right. But it's a very short life phenomenon. And it's uh, it's 18 inches to two feet in diameter. I mean, it's just not very big and it lasts for seconds. Yeah. So we have we have one. I think one of the witnesses said that the, he watched the thing for 15 minutes as it sat mm -hmm. on the ground. And once it left, then he could start his car. Another one watched it for five minutes. So they, they were watching it for everybody were reporting seeing the thing for over a minute, except uh, for the sheriff. And the Air Force report says, well, it just just for two seconds. And it was in the distance until you talk to him without the influence of the Air Force. And you find out that they got much closer and the sighting lasted much longer. Interesting. Now. The same thing that c could cause a sunburn, you know, I think of the first thing I think of is like radiation, like, you know, the speculation with the um, cash uh, Landrum Landrum. Thank you. Cash Landrum case, you know, possibly radiation. But with that also, what makes a car stall that can we make car stalls if I mean, we probably have some type of weaponry that we've developed to do something like that. Right. Well, during the World, Second World War, Japanese tried to um, invent something, uh, an electromagnetic gun, 
that would stall aircraft engines. So if you could put that in your fighter planes and you could stall the engine of your enemy's fighters, you've got a great advantage over that. Oh, I guess. Yeah. But they could only get it to work within about five feet. Of, of, <laughs> so it didn't work. And, and there was, uh, it could, it generated a field that could kill as well. Um, I think we know the uh, microwave, you, microwave antennas. I, I know we had a couple of helicopters with microwave antennas and we were, you know, do not approach this antenna when the aircraft is operating because you could, you could be burned by the microwave energy. And of course we all have microwave ovens now, so we understand that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is weaponry, at least an attempt to develop weaponry from this sort of thing. We do know it works. We do know it can suppress engines. The problem with the Condon committee, they could think of nothing that would cause the engine to spontaneous restart once you remove the electromagnetic field and allow mm. the electrons to flow. The, the the headlights would come on because that's a different thing, but you have to do something to start the engine once you've, once you've killed it using the electromagnetic effect. There are reports of people saying their car started spontaneously and they make a big deal of it. And I said, one of the, as I pointed out, one of the guys in the level on case just insisted that his car started spontaneously. He took no action to start it. Everybody else seemed to have had to do something to get the car to start. So, that was one of the reasons the Condon Committee rejected the idea of this because they, they got hung up on this idea that the all the cars would restart spontaneously and they could think of no mechanism where that would happen, no physical mechanism that would allow that. I can't think of anything either, actually, that would actually make a car start again once it was stalled without someone turning the key, you know, over to start. Or rolling downhill and popping the clutch. Yeah, yeah something like that. <laughs> I mean, it is bizarre, but I, I have heard of those cases as well. Which, uh, And who was the one that wrote the book years ago about car stalls? The one that I know of is Mark Rodiger has, did, has done the um, vehicle interference survey that he conducted for the Center for UFO Studies, which was a great assistance in, in my uh, research. The other thing is there's been a number of, sort of ancillary studies done as well. A guy named Eric Hare um, was collecting stories of compass interference. And you look at um, the history of this sort of thing, uh, the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Arnold didn't have a problem with this, but the farmer named farmer, a uh, prospector named Fred Johnson, about 15 minutes after Arnold's sighting ended, and he's, he's also in Washington, and these things flew over his site and caused his compass to spin. So there was that sort of suggest the magnetic effect. There's been a number of cases like that. And I think um, Eric and an, is it, I, I'm not sure it was Frank, it may have been Frank Ridge that uh, was involved in that, but they, they collected 140, 150 cases of interference with compasses. And I outline a couple of those in the book as well, because we're looking for other aspects of this electromagnetic effect. There's the animals re react to it periodically. And it suggests not all UFO sightings have these sort of things manifest themselves, but there are a great number of sightings where animals react to the, the yeah. close approach of the UFO, the, the car yeah. engine stall, the radio stations have been knocked off the air, power failures, um, and there's four cases that we found that kind of cracked me up where the cars changed color because of what? the close approach of the UFO. And one of them, huh. uh, and, it, and it talk about it in the book, uh, the guy comes home and I can't remember whether the car was gray and it turned green or if it was green and turned gray, but he came home after the close approach of the UFO and his wife says, you buy a new car because oh. it was a different color. Uh, we, we found like four cases like that where 
there was some influence on the color. Was there a permanent color change? Yeah, yeah there's a permanent so color that change. Would, that would be something, again, it would seem like a radiation or something like that could cause an effect like that. Now they have a car. There's a new car coming out this year that you can actually change the color on. With a, it's a, it has a skin over it. So with the push of a button, you can just change the color. Uh, well, and there, there was a number of paints that came out a, a number of years ago. And I remember seeing a Mustang that was painted in this uh, really expensive paint. And depending on the lighting and the time of day and everything, it would change color. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it was some, something that was part of the um, um, paint scheme. It was, it was designed to do that. But there, I, I, we've only found a couple of cases where close approach of the UFO uh, causes the paint to change color. But the thing I'd say about the you know, electromagnetic radiation would be electromagnetic radiation. It is a form of radiation, just as light is a form of radiation and heat is a form of radiation. We're not talking about uh, um, something in the, the atomic uh, realm you know, that's radioactive, but it, it is a form of radiation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could see, I could also see if there was a great deal of heat where he could make something like that happen as well, as far as, I mean, that that's just, it's again, it's just fascinating, but. Um, well, that's a problem. You see, we're looking, we're, we're talking about cases that place a long time ago, a long time ago. And the problem is when they were investigated, nobody did ask the right questions because I know in the cases where the cars change color, I don't know of a great, a deal of heat being applied and that would have been a quick question you know did you feel a great deal of yeah exactly well you're you're frozen i'm not sure what's going on you're frozen so while that's happening hopefully you'll come right back the heat from this yeah uh, you froze there for a second kevin uh not my fault <laughs> it's the internet well, what me can i tell you since you're freezing, I'm going to show this here. Uh, I, I just think it's really cool. This is the car that changes color. It's BMW. So they have this new tech technology. It's some type of skin or something like that. And uh, so I don't know. I like cars. So I like German cars. <laughs> so I'm just showing this because I think it's another really very interesting thing. And uh, I'm sure people are going to pay a fortune for it. I don't know exactly why, but anyway. Well, if you have enough money, it probably yeah. doesn't matter. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. For the rest of us, it's, wow, I can't afford that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But uh, so getting back to what car causes a car to stall, electromagnetic. Now, are there reasons why, I mean, I, I know that if, we ever had like a, an electromagnetic pulse, a real severe one, like from um, a nuclear warhead going off in our upper atmosphere or something like that. It would just totally knock out anything through a pulse like that. So would a minor pulse temporarily, you know, what, what knocks out a car temporarily and makes it usable after? That's kind of what I'm getting at. Do you know? I think the electromagnetic pulse you're talking about and I, and I use the term electromagnetic pulse so they can realize it's sort of the same thing we've been talking about here, uh, is so overwhelming it fries the electronics in the cars. Yep. So the idea is if you had a car from the 1950s without all the electronics in it, you probably could get it to start again. 
Right. Uh, you may have right. to roll it down the hill and pop the clutch. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, th- I think that I think that's it. I, I but my impression is the electromagnetic field surrounding these UFOs is limited it's not really widespread you have to get pretty close for it to affect your car so it's it, in that respect it seems to be somewhat of a weaker field there are cases where um and again talk about it in the book a guy got close to one and it distorted the rear window of his car he had a a, a um convertible so the rear rear window was sort of plastic and it, it was distorted yeah. but it also wiped out the uh cassette tapes he had in his in his car Oh. Uh, you know, uh, degaussed the tapes, I guess you'd say. Yeah. So we do have those kind of effects reported as well. So, but it's always, it's, it's limited. It's not every UFO sighting. It's a, a small minority of the sightings where we get this, this electromagnetic effect. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, like I said, I think Rodiger had 485 cases in his book and it went to 1985, something like that. There's been, cases after that. And I uh, outlined a number of those in, in the book as well that took place after Rodiger had finished his research onto it. So it's an ongoing phenomenon as well. I think um, Frank Ridge on his uh, MADAR network, one of the things they look for is an anomaly in the magnetic fields around what they call the node the station. It's a sort of a magnetometer that uh, measures the m- ambient uh, electromagnetic radiation, and if there's a spike in it, it will trigger an alert on the uh, on the devices. It has a number of other sensors that picks up other anomalies as well, but that's kind of the thing behind the idea of a UFO detector. It's looking for the electromagnetic fields. You can go on to Amazon and you can buy a, a commercial version of a UFO detector. I don't know how good they are. <laughs> I know with the MADAR network, and I think their equipment is probably much more sensitive they get uh, quite a number of false positive that the detector will go off, but they, there is no corresponding sighting. There are cases where the detector has gone off and there's a corresponding sighting. And th- those are kind of exciting because you've got another data stream. Yeah. But, but um, I think that uh, the fields around the UFOs are pretty well localized. It doesn't spread out over a wide area, like an electromagnetic pulse from an atomic weapon would. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's nearly as strong as that. So it doesn't necessarily fry the electronics because if that was true, I think we'd have problems where you'd get up one morning and your all your electronics in your house might be fried because of a close approach of a UFO. Mm. So, right. Yeah. And I know of no cases. Well, there's one case where they, they, they I, I, there are people who've talked about where the electronics in their house has failed and there's no external explanation for it. And you also hear a lot of times about batteries that are drained, like people. And I don't know if that could even be related in any type of way to any type of magnetic situation. I know definitely when a tape is erased, that's definitely a magnetic situation. But that well, people have said video cameras of cell phone, cell phones, the battery completely drained while they're trying to, to film. Or other other failures of the camera. The video phone, uh, the, the cell phone cameras. That was one of the things I've been looking into, and I, my next report on coast to coast may do that if I can, if or unless something else comes up. But looking at cases where people have tried to video using their cell phones and yeah. the camera fails, oh, they'll just get they'll get audio but no visual. Um, 
the camera won't turn on. There's, there's all kinds of failures related to the camera. And once the UFO is gone, then the thing begins to work properly again. But and, and that's also true. Remember, we had the, the, the couple near Amarillo whose car battery was uh, drained by close approach of the UFO. The battery didn't work anymore. So, yeah, that's another side effect of, of the UFOs. And those those sorts of um, cases are much, much rarer than just your general EM effect case. Right. Now, what about the aftermath of this of this day? You said they on the third that who was who was looking into this? Did the Air Force actually look into this quietly? I think they looked into it both quietly and noisily. Uh, and I say that I say that because, um, as I mentioned, Norman Barth, who was a staff sergeant, he was part of the uh, 1006th Air Intelligence Service Squadron, and they were, he was based in uh, Colorado Springs, which is basically uh, not not all that far from Level Land. And of course, he would have access to Air Force aircraft. So if they had a training flight going to Reese Air Force Base, well, he just hopped on board. So he got down there pretty quick. He spent a total of seven hours in Level Land. Um, mm. And we don't know who all he talked with. We, we know he talked to six people. We don't know if he talked to anybody else. He disappeared for a number of hours. We don't know where he went. He showed up at the sheriff's office around 11 o'clock in the morning. He talked to the sheriff. He talked to some people. He went away. He came back to the sheriff's office about 3.45, 2.45 in the afternoon. And that was kind of it. And then um, he went back and filled out his report. And he had all kinds of excuses. He said, well, you know, the weather was bad. It was drizzly and kind of stormy in the area. But you look at the weather records, and that's not true. Hmm. Um, he said that uh, they in that area, there's a lot of of oil drilling going on. That's part of the Permian Basin. It runs from uh, West Texas, actually to Roswell. It's part of the Permian Basin's big oil field that ah. they periodically tap and then they turn it off and then they turn it back on. But they would burn off the excess gases, you know, at the top of the oil wells or the um, cracking facilities. And they said, well, the people were seeing that reflected off the clouds. And I'm thinking, yeah, they've lived, lived there for 20 years. I've never seen that happen. So I'm going to get confused by it. Uh, they came up with these excuses, but in the end, they just said, well, it was ball lightning and let it go at that. And that's still the explanation in the uh, official record. So he spent that time doing it. But what bothers me is we've got Air Force officers who were involved. We got Air Force officers, the provost marshal, as I mentioned, was out there with the sheriff the next day looking. We know that there were Air Force officers with the sheriff that night traveling with him because I found I found some documentation to support that, but I can find no record of an interrogation of the Air Force officer. So you have to ask yourself, where did that go? If I'm conducting a comprehensive uh, investigation of this sighting and I know fellow Air Force officers are involved, I'm going to want to talk to them. And, exactly. and I'm yeah. going to think that their information is going to be much better than the average civilian. Right. Um, because of their background. And I would imagine, and I'm guessing here, because I don't know who they were, but I would guess that the operations officer would have been one of those officers. I'm guessing one of the intelligence officers would have been one of the officers out there. And both those men would have been trained in specific things. Um, the air operations officer has a, a grounding in a lot of the activities going on in the base because that's kind of his job to manage this stuff especially the air activities and the intelligence office, of course, would be trained in gathering intelligence. That's what he does hmm. and disseminating it to people. So if I'm there, I want to talk to those guys. There's no indication they were ever talked to. There's no indication that Barth even talked to the provost marshal who was out there the next day with the sheriff. And we've got documentation supporting that as well. 
So you have to wonder about the quality of the invest the, the the investigation we know about, and we have to wonder. Well, didn't they do something a little bit more and a little bit more clandestine than uh, the Barth showing up to kind of uh, chat up the locals and tell people not to talk about it and go away? And I, my answer is yes. Of course, they gathered that information from the Air Force officers who were involved, and there may have been other Air Force officers in the area in civilian clothing gathering information. There's even indication that the FBI was involved. The, the sheriff mentioned that the FBI suggested he not talk about it. So mm-hmm. we've got a, a wide range of indications of a more in-depth investigation, but we can't find and I shouldn't say we because I don't think a lot of people look for it, but I couldn't find anything taking me any deeper into it, where those records would be housed or how they would be stored or what code word I needed to to access them through FOIA. Yeah. And so that was 64 years or so ago. I'm sure that, you know, for there to be any witnesses alive is probably that dashed that hope. Um, well, well, now, uh, as I said, Don Burlinson was there a couple of decades ago and, and the sheriff had passed away, but his wife was still alive. His daughter was still alive. Yeah. And, and we're, we're at the same point with the Roswell case, which is coming up on 75 years ago. So you're looking at people who would have been uh, you might have had a 20 year old uh, private or buck sergeant there in Roswell in 1947. He'd be 95 now. Right. I think the oldest guy I talked to, military guy I talked to in the Roswell case was 89 years old. He was sharp as a tack. And the only thing he really told me is, oh, we were told not to talk about it and forget everything we'd seen. And I thought that was kind of a hoot. I got a book coming out called Understanding Roswell. And there's a short segment about his interaction with with that sort of that sort of thing. But we're looking at, you know, we're looking at a time where now we're we're dealing with people who are getting very old. and we And we've seen recently how age can diminish your uh, cognitive abilities. I talked to the oldest guy I talked to in the Roswell investigation was 96 years old when I talked to him. And I'm just not sure how sharp he was. I tried to be very careful in my questioning not lead him or suggest where I wanted to go and kind of let kind of draw on what he was saying to me to, to find out what's going on in a preliminary investigation. And uh, I think he died like three or four months after I talked to him. His goal was to reach 100, and he failed by four years. But uh, wow! Uh, but uh, uh, that was we've we've talked to a number of people who are very old, and some of them were very sharp, and some of them were just not completely there. Now I'm going to ask you about since you know so much about the the witnesses, are you familiar with the Gerald Anderson interview? Which one? Oh, just uh, just any one of them. I saw one. There's one on the national U.S. National Archives that was done in 1991. Stanton Friedman, I think, uh, interviews him. Yeah, it shouldn't be in the National Archives. I've tried to have those tapes removed because they're because they're under the auspices of the Air Force, having supplied them to the National Archives. And it gives it a level of credibility they don't deserve. And I say Uh that about Gerald Anderson, who is a proven liar, claimed to be a Navy SEAL. And the Navy SEALs used to have a, a thing called their Hall of Shame where they outed guys who claimed to be SEALs but who were not. And Anderson's name was on there. I showed the information to Stan, but he wasn't interested um, in so, that. So he's basically, if you ask me, you're just giving me this information and you're sure about all those facts, then he's not a credible. No, not at all. He submitted a diary that supposedly was written in 1947 about his experiences. 
And when the ink was tested, it was an ink that was not available until 1974. So then he came up with another story. Well, we copied the diary, the, the diaries. You know, see, so we pass them around the family. So we copied them. We hand copied them later. I'm thinking, yeah, you never heard of a Xerox machine, pal? Um, oh. He said, um, there, there's things on my blog about Gerald Anderson. I've, uh, I did an article called, yeah, there he is. I did an article called um, Missing Time. And the reason I called it that was uh, Anderson and I had a conversation. I was the first one to talk to Anderson, by the way. We talked for about 56 minutes and I was not impressed with his credibility. We found a lot of problems with his testimony and how things changed and altered as he gave, gathered more information. And so he came up with a phone bill, his phone bill, because um, I didn't have his, oh, I had his phone number. I called him. I left a message. He called me back. And so I got a copy of the, the um, John Carpenter trying to remember the exact sequence of events here. I'm sorry. Uh, John Carpenter interviewed him as well. And to prove that I had lied about the length of the phone call, saying it was 54 minutes, Anderson prevented a, a phone mail that said it, I'd spoken to him for, 50, for 26 minutes. Well, I got a copy of the phone bill directly from Southwestern Bell, and it showed the 54-minute phone call. So we had this missing time. Uh, um, <laughs> but, it was, but it was obvious that Anderson had faked the phone bill. I had, I had a copy of the original, and we had the one that he had given to Carpenter, which was clearly faked. Oh, we found, no. so he'd faked the phone bill. He later admitted he faked the phone bill, by the way, to, to make me look bad. And I'm thinking, yeah, it made me look real bad, fella. Uh, <laughs> kind yeah. of outed you, though, didn't it? Um, he uh, came up with a, a number of documents that were clearly forged. He lied about his background. Um, he originally said that the alien creatures he saw on the plains of San Augustine, separating this from Roswell, on the plains of San Augustine, were milky blue, bright milky blue eyes. And I thought, well, I never heard that before. Hmm. And then, of course, it came out that um, he changed the story that they were dark eyes, like you see in all the pictures of the of people who've been abducted. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, the tape, you misheard mis the tape. He says murky blue on the tape, meaning dark, dark blue, almost black. And I said, no, um, he says milky blue. And I found out where he got the milky blue. If you go to Willie Strieber's book, I think it's... Um, Transformation, the hardback cover has an illustration of the gray alien with milky blue eyes. That's huh. where he got it. Wow. So, you know, Anderson's testimony is not credible whatsoever. He moved the site three or four times. Um, well, that's that's uh, that's terrible. I mean, that someone has given up, you know, I mean, I believe there's I forget how many views there are. Let me just take a look. It's a lot. Uh, 800, almost a million views. Oh, and, and those people are going to take that as serious. Well, we've got and, Philip Corso's book and, and people, st I still ask me, well, what do you think about Philip Corso? And yeah, I say, I that too. not much. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, and you know, I think it's very important for the listener that takes this topic serious to hear things like this. Um, because I didn't know, you know, when I was first looking into it, I heard about Corso and, um, uh, and I know that woman that works, the Italian woman that works with him. Um, you know, I had her on the show. I had no idea that his story fell apart, too. There's so many of them. And, and what is it that makes people do that? Do, do they see like someone getting attention? And, you know, I mean, makes you wonder. 
Well, there's people always always want to find themselves in the spotlight, and they come up with ways of doing it. Um, or people just want to um, uh, make themselves seem larger than life, I suppose. There was a survey done in the mid-1990s about uh, – uh, it's not really a, an official census, but it was uh, uh, an official survey of things. And they learned that there were 13 million people who claimed to be Vietnam veterans. If you look at the documentation from the Department of Defense, there were like 200, 2 million, 2.5 million Vietnam veterans, people who actually served in country. Mm -hmm. Well, now we've got, what, 10 million people lying about their service there. Wow. And, and it, it goes on and on. Some guys, some guys just tell these her stories of horrific combat, and you listen to the story and say, yeah, I saw that in a movie once. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And, and uh, David Rudiak and I got into a big fight over the people lying about being Vietnam veterans. We had a senator, Tom Harkin, and I really shouldn't say bad things about him because um, I was awarded a Bronze Star Medal for my service in Iraq, and it was presented to me by Tom Harkin. Uh, as one of his last official acts as a uh, United States senator. But he had, on his Senate biography, he'd been a Vietnam veteran, and he wasn't. He had to change it to Vietnam-era veteran. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, you, I could, yeah, that's something. Well, uh, we're actually wrapping up on time here in just, in just a couple of minutes. So um, the book is out on Amazon. The link will be down in the show notes. And is that also going to be available like on Kindle and eventually yeah. possibly audiobook uh, yeah funny you should say that because i just talked to the woman uh, just this last week who's going to be doing the reading for the audiobook <laughs> so yes there will be an audiobook there's a hardback edition as well which uh cost 27 dollars and of course i got one for free so i was happy with that <laughs> but i mean for those of you it's really kind of a nice little book the 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 regular book which i think you showed here is um a large format paperback and the, the hardback is somewhat more compact, but it's a nice little hardback book. It's, it's kind of neat to have yeah. that as well. Yeah. So, see. yeah, it's available on Kindle. It's available on various ebooks. It's uh, available as a hard copy. It's available as a uh, paperback. And it's going to be available, apparently, as a um, as a audiobook. And if you're real, really lucky, you can find a version in German. <laughs> That's that's uh, wunderbar. So, yeah. <laughs> Danke. Yeah. All right, Kevin. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll be talking next time. That's always a great pleasure to have you on the show. And again, well, check you. out the blog. I love your blog. It's uh, it's got a, it's not, it's Blogspot, is it? Is, is that what it is? It's, it's oh. uh, kevin.blogspot.com. Kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Kevin Randall, all lowercase, run together. It's also called A Different Perspective, and if you type in A Different Perspective, it usually comes up. And some of the UFO cases you might be looking for, my blog comes up as one of the first um, places that they'll send you to look for it, look for That's information right. on it. Yeah. Type in Gerald Anderson, by the way. <laughs> well, I've seen that many times where I'm looking, I'm researching a case, and there it is right there. So um, you're doing something right, that's for sure. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right, Kevin, take care. You too. All right. All right, everyone. So we'll be right back with Albert Wayne. And hold on to your seats. It should be interesting.
All right, welcome back. I'm excited to have this guest on, Albert Wayne, who was on before and just did a short video of him talking about his experience that was really bizarre. If you haven't seen it, it's really incredible. If you haven't seen the interview, I mean, it's really incredible. And I want to talk more in detail about that. But there are some other things that happened to him and his family. We're going to be talking about all that as well. Albert, welcome. Hello, Martin. Thank you it's, for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And I want to, I know you're a very humble and who I consider a credible person, but I want the people watching this video to take a look in the background because that's one of your paintings. I love your work. Thank you. I love your work. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And that's great fish. And they look like they're pretty active. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, very, it's, it's photorealistic. It's very, very nice work. I know as a painter myself, how much time it must take you to paint a painting like that? It, it takes a fair while. Yeah. A fair bit. Yeah. 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 You pack away at these things. You don't just do them, you know? You, well, no, I just do mine. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them I do. I just, it's fun. Funny. Um, sometimes I like the paintings better that I can put out in 15 minutes than I do the ones I spend four days on. So there's a lot of truth in that. Sometimes the faster you can, you can see there's a lot of very quick, very, very fast brushwork and uh, palette knife work. That one didn't take me nearly as long as the other one that you, uh, that you were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. That I sent to you. Well, well, they're excellent. So, all right. Um, let's talk about you and you're basically where you grew up, what type of background you had and all that. And, but you were nine years old when you had a sighting. So let's, I guess we should talk about that. Then we'll go into the, into your sighting. I'm going to ask you, you know, more details about it. But let's talk about what happened first when you were nine years old. Okay, well, uh, it was, you know, it was fairly typical for families back then to sit out on the on the front porch and, you know, be out in the evenings in the summer. Yeah. Um, we were we were on a second floor and there was there were two balconies on the home. And we were we were up there, my mother, my father and my my uncle. And they were they were doing what everybody did back then, or almost everybody. They were smoking cigarettes and having coffee and beer, I believe, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and um, there was a there was a, a tree line across the street from our from our house, and off in the distance, it was my mother that first noticed. There was a a very large, uh, what what we thought was a star, but it was it, it dwarfed any stars that would have been out, and you could. And it was all by itself. The sun had just gone down, so it was still around dusk. And so it was way too bright to be a star. And uh, she pointed it out, and it, and it, changed, uh, it changed colors. Now, it was out there for, for a, a fair bit of time. I remember uh, we were staring at this while it changed from, from light red to, to orange, to, to blue, to a, a, a green, a viridian green, sort of just changing color. And, and, and it would also grow in size to about the size of a quarter from where we were sitting down to about the size of a, maybe a dime. And it would sit there and turn color. Then it would get large again and it would phase back out again. So I would say that, that we, we stared at that for five or six minutes, you know, it was, 10 minutes possibly. And, um, 
it didn't move. It, it didn't go, you know, up or down, east or west. It just stayed right where it was. And after, after 10 minutes, let's say, I mean, I was nine, so I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So after about 10 minutes, we, we noticed there were, there were two, what we, what we thought at the time, uh, there were two lights, just bright white lights. We thought they were just aircraft in general, you know, like a, a jetliner or something. And this was, this was quite a ways out there. So it was plausible that they were just jetliners and one was coming in from the east and one from the west. Hmm. And they were, uh, you know, the, the entire length of the sky apart, but they were, they were as close to us as this object was. They, they headed straight for this orb, if you will. And we thought for sure that if they didn't change course, they were, they were going to crash because they, mm. they were on a perfectly straight trajectory for this orb. And it was when they got to within, you know, from where we were inches of the orb on both sides, my mother said, oh, my God, they're going to crash. They're going to hit this, that thing, whatever it is. They went, they, they went into it. There was no explosion of any kind, nothing. And, and as soon as they entered or, or collided in this orb, a spark fell from the bottom of it. Uh, I want to say a spark, but it was like a white light, uh, a, just a white spark. And it arced slightly and came, fell down to the ground. Wow. So for another 30 seconds or so, we were sitting there and, the, and this orb continued to, to change colors. Now the white lights were gone. They're, they had disappeared into this object. And uh, I mean, they just disappeared. You didn't see them come out the other side. They or didn't come back out. They didn't come back out. They just well, they disappeared. I guess jetliners. <laughs> so, yeah, we ruled that out pretty quickly. Yeah. So, um, it continued to, to fluctuate in size, and it continued to fluctuate in color, and then it and then it grew very small and very faint, and it and it just vanished. Wow! It, it just blipped out of existence. So. We, we sat there for a bit, my, and my uncle was snapping photographs of this all, all the while. He was really, yeah, he had his camera with him, and he was taking pictures. But I think you know what I'm going to say about those pictures. He didn't come out. He didn't. According to the photo, of the the drugstore that we brought the camera to, they they were just uh, the, the the film was tainted. It was uh, gray blur. Everything was gray. Yeah. So, but but the interesting thing about this was we couldn't have been the only. Uh, individuals saw this because where were you exactly? Where where was we were, the place? Massachusetts, southern yeah. Massachusetts, down down towards the border of Rhode Island. I see. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, I'm just wondering: is it is it uh, you know is there a high population there? Where a lot of people yes. outside? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's between North Attleboro is between Boston oh, yeah. and Providence, so it's very yeah, it's know where it is. continuous. Yeah. yeah. So um, within within. 10 minutes we we could hear after after this object had vanished we could hear uh the 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 distant rumblings of of engines and the jet fighters appeared out of you know out of the 
out of the east. Hmm. And for for about ten or fifteen minutes, they there were there were four of them, and they were doing crisscross patterns from from about where my house was north, where the object was, and and I mean they were doing like checker checker they would turn come back checkerboard patterns. So some somebody or some someone or some group of individuals had to have seen the same thing and called Otis Air Force bases, which is our guess oh, is where they came yeah. out. Mm-hmm. So we weren't the only ones that we didn't call, but we somebody had to have called, or they picked it up on radar or something. Right. Yeah. So that was that. That's that story. That's that's the. Had, had you ever heard of any? Did anyone else ever talk about it that you knew, were aware of? No. I know no, you no. were young, but I mean, did you? Did the adults try to do anything about it? You know, call anyone or anything mm-hmm. like that? No, I think they just lit another cigarette and broke open the beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was kind of crazy, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was that. that. That's pretty much the whole thing. Uh, there was nothing yeah. else to it. Um, yeah. Well, that's interesting that this whatever it was fell to the ground. And did it? Did, was it kind of? I know it's hard to tell how far away something like this was, and all that. Really, really hard to tell, you know. But I'm wondering how quickly whatever it was dropped to the ground. Dropped to the ground Qu- quickly. And it didn't fall straight. It 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 fell on an on, on a slight arc. Wow. Yeah. It almost almost as though if okay, if you took a flare and it, yeah. and it was it was pure bright white, mm-hmm. and you, and you could speed it up. Mm. That's what it looked like. Mm. Wow. It was certainly not debris. There was no other debris after these two lights merged into the orb. There was no other. There was no other debris of any kind, and it's and it continued to, to hang there for you know several minutes, and then. Would just you say that those those whatever they were, the orbs that merged into it, did they do it evenly? Like, did they both go into it about the same time? At exactly the same time. I mean, huh. precisely the same moment. Yeah, that's that's yep. really, yeah, yep. that that's actually quite exciting. At first, when you started to say light in the sky, you know, I'm thinking, oh, this is a light in the sky story, which many, many people have. Yeah. Um, but unless they do something really spectacular, and it sounds like this pretty much did. Well, even at nine years old, it, uh, you know, I, there was definitely, we're not in Kansas anymore, you know, yeah. for me, it changed, it, it really changed the way I saw things uh, as, as far as what, as far as what was in the sky. And, so what did they, what was the conversation after that? Do you remember anything about that, or did no. you talk to them afterward? You know, years years down the road, to any of them about that? Well, my my mother, who who I would say I was closest to. Uh, I'm an only child, and she was very young when she had me, so it was like having an older sister. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother and I brought it up from time to time. You know, do you remember that? What we said, yeah. you know, but that's. But that's all. We're, mm-hmm. I, you know, we're not investigators. We're not. Yeah. We're not UFO. We don't write about it. We, you know, I don't. Yeah. So did that when you had your, your second sighting that we're going to talk about later? Uh, did you kind of feel like there was any type of connection between the two? No, you, no. no. Did you, because the reason I'm asking that, there is a reason I'm asking that question. Okay. And I know you do listen to my show, 
Um, but yeah, but that a lot of times people will think there's some type of connection between a childhood sighting or something they have later as an adult. That's the only reason I asked that particular question. Oh, uh, do, you, do you mean, do you mean, do I thought it was special for me? I, I know that I sounds, I know that sounds weird, but yes. No, I, I no. <laughs> even the, even the Connecticut sighting, I have, I have absolutely no belief that it was special for me in, in any way. Yeah, I was one of the, I was one yeah. of a multitude because I think that I think that these things are seen by thousands and thousands of people who never even talk about it again. Right. It's not just and, uh, the it kind of so, cards. It hmm? kind of sounds like most of the adults on the porch that night really didn't talk about it after. Um, now, being nine years old, I remember what that's like. Or yeah. Sort of around that age. I mean, you're inquisitive as heck at that point. Yes. And, you know, you probably had a lot of questions. Um, did they say the word UFO or what did they try to what did the adults try to explain it was? Do you remember any of that? No. At the time? Yeah. I no, mean, no, no. They were just as they were just as perplexed as I was. They I remember that they were, um, you know, my mother was pretty adamant that it was a UFO. Yeah. Uh, years before that, in the 1950s or yeah, it would have been in the fifties. Uh, my grandmother had a had a what what I guess is termed. Uh, I've heard the term and description a ghost rocket. Okay, fly past her while getting out of her car in a, in a late evening shift that she was working. It, it she says she turned and she looked up and a, and it was like a star was coming down at her and it flew right by her and then vanished up into the other side of the of the driveway and then off into the sky. So my mother was, you know. And these are these are working class factory, Massachusetts salt of the earth. You know, yeah, it is what it is, and it's nothing more. That and but but when she said, "Yeah, this rocket flew past me," and it was in the fifties that that happened. So my mother wasn't that that wasn't the sighting that we're going to talk about with your mother and your grandmother. No, no, that one one is that one for me personally is the most is the most compelling and the most interesting sighting. Okay, well, let's finish this one. Sure. Uh, first. So, I mean, the ghost rockets were known in 1946. And if you, anyone wants to look at, they were mostly in S- Sweden. Um, I believe that's where they were. Was it Switzerland? I always get the two mixed up. Uh, right. One yeah. of them made its way over to Plainville, Massachusetts, though. I want you to know that. <laughs> yeah. But um, but just for the person that, you know, wants to do the, the research yeah. uh, there, the ghost rockets were known um, to have. No, no wings. Um, I don't believe they talk much about known uh, propulsion. Uh, and I guess it was Finland is where they were they were going back in 1946. There's there's only one picture that someone actually took with one going over, and they've never been explained. I'm going to put the picture up here. They've never been explained, but they they certainly did one thing very peculiar. And that is, they were known to land in lakes. And there was some research on the lakes. Um, you know, on a particular lake, there's a there's a, the only known image of one, I, I suppose. But they were known to land in lakes. And they never found one. When they go to the bottom of the lake, they never found one. And they have this, not just 1946 is when a lot of it happened, but there was a later one all the way back in the 1980s 
or a very similar thing, and it went into a lake again. So it's it's bizarre. But um, all that being said, I don't think you know. I mean that that sounds really interesting, and I'm sure you gave all the detail that you know about that. Yeah, that's so now, yeah. Go ahead. No, just that. Just that. I was tying that into my my mother being really adamant that what we were seeing was a UFO, because she she couldn't. She had no context, nor did my father or uncle, we had, or myself, we had no context to place that in. Because as far as we were concerned, we were watching two aircraft crash. Yeah. And and they just went into the orbit and then didn't come out the other side. And then that spark fell. So we had no context to wrap our heads around on that. Yeah. So it's just one more, just one more thing about that particular one. Would you say it was a perfectly straight trajectory? that those two orbs and they were coming in at exactly the same time. Um, and was it like steady or were they all over the place? No, there was, it was just, it, it was like watching a, a jetliner in the distance flying across the horizon line. It was just, they were, there was a slight arc of course, because of the shape of the, you know, the earth and they were, they were like this. Oops. <laughs> Boom. It wasn't straight like this. It was they arced up from the horizon, from both sides, yeah. and entered the entered the orb. Wow. Okay. So let's hear about your grandmothers and mothers to get your mother together with your grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just just to let you know, my mom my mom passed away about uh, three weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank thank you. I traveled back there to be with her to Massachusetts and uh, talked to her about it again. Wow. Yeah, I asked her, I said, Mom, are these, to your your memory, are these, is this your recollection? Excuse me, I have fur or something. something. Um, And she, she said, yep, that's exactly, yeah, that's, that's what happened. But so I was a, I was around 15 years old or so, and and um, my let me see if I can. My mom, my mom worked. Let me a little bit of background first. My mother worked at at a state school, and she worked the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. Mm-hmm. So she would. This is the same house that we had the other siding. She would go downstairs. My grandparents lived downstairs. Mm-hmm. She would go down through my grandmother's kitchen this was my father's mother mm-hmm. she would go through her kitchen my grandmother let her out and watched to make sure she got into her car safely mm-hmm. and she would close the door lock it and go to bed herself this was their this was their ritual every night mm-hmm. well, this particular evening she walked uh, they, they, they did that my mother stepped outside onto the back deck and she and something caught her attention. So she looked to the left, and two two house lengths away, there was there was a, another two decker tenement, and my my aunt lived in that built in that house, mm-hmm. and, and a cousin. Okay, and my my mother saw sitting in 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 the air behind the house something that she said was the size of a small airliner, mm-hmm. to, just sitting there. Hmm. By this time, my grandmother had closed the door. Okay, no, 
no, she no. The, the door was still open, but she was stepping back to to, to close the door after my mom got in the car. Mm-hmm. My mother turned back and looked in the kitchen and signaled to my grandmother to come out and take a look at this. And when she did, when my grandmother stepped to the door, she looked over my mother's shoulder and she threw the door shut and uh, passed out on the kitchen floor. She Re- passed out? Passed out, leaving, oh. my, leaving my mother standing outside with the door closed and locked. Oh, my God. My, my mother turned around. And with it, she said, within arm's length was the was the front of this object, and it was now sitting behind her. And it had she the way she describes it, it had two two very large. She called them eyes, but what I think because they were she said they were they were hazy, foggy white. What I believe they were were portals. Okay, she said. So can can we just stop here for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Because I just want to I want to get this right. I want everyone to understand. So your grandmother looks out. Possibly this thing was coming toward them because your mother was facing toward the door. She's signaling signaling her to come out, and all of a sudden this object is within arm's length and not moving, it, it, and not even moving. It was it was behind the other house. Now I'm I'm going to I'm going to guesstimate that it was that it was a hundred yards away, seventy five yards, a hundred yards. Mm-hmm. She saw it sitting behind the house. She turned and said and said, "Blanche, come here for a minute." And by the time my grandmother stepped around the door and got in front of my mother, it had already parked itself behind our house. It was sitting behind my mother, behind the deck of the house. So she didn't see it move there. It just it was just there. It was there one second and then the next second it was sitting behind her. Hmm. So my grandmother passed out is did you want to ask any other questions? Yeah, no, no. So your grandmother stepped around her, slammed the door, and passed out. Leaving her outside with the door locked. <laughs> my mother screamed. Yeah. A a, a fair response. Mm-hmm. She screamed, and when she did, this object <laughs> And I don't think it's because she scared the object, but maybe it figured that, okay. So it, this object took off backwards. And when it did, it, it took half of our weeping willow tree with it. It, it broke off a, a huge, the, the secondary limb to our weeping willow tree. And I remember that because I woke up that morning to the sound of a chainsaw. And it was my uncle out in the backyard cutting up half of this weeping willow tree, which was laying on the ground. Wow. Crazy. And she said, my mother said she watched it. She heard a a crash when it hit the tree. And then she watched it just disappear like a, like a a spark, a wisp into, into, into the sky and out into space, just with like a white light. That is, that's it. That's quite, quite the story. And, uh, now, how about your, what was the aftermath? I mean, your grand, grandmother was ended up being okay, I'm sure. I mean. She, but, she was okay. Yeah. She was fresh. Did, did she let her, did she wake up and then let her in and they talk about it? Yeah. You know yeah. yeah. My mother was, my mother was uh, banging on the door pretty hard after, after this thing had vanished. She was pounding on the door. My grandmother finally came to and let her in and they, 
they talked about it. Yeah. Any other witnesses that you're aware of for that no. one? No. So did she, she said it looked like eyes, but it was probably portals, but mm -hmm. portals, but uh, portholes, pardon me. What else could she, did she describe about the way it looked? Martin, I think she was, I think she was too frightened to take any mental notes, honestly. It was, it was literally behind her an arm's length away the front of it, you know, you know. She never talked about the shape of it in any, any type of way, you know. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a bizarre one. And for this thing to blink and be right there and then, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. And did she talk about it a lot? I mean, did you know right away when you were 15? Oh, I knew the day that it, I knew the day. Oh after. yeah. Because of the, the chainsaw. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, yeah, that's quite interesting for one family to have all these <laughs> different things. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. All right. Well, now I'd like to talk about the one we've already talked about okay. and get into that in, in more detail. So I know um, a lot of people, I mean, it's like almost 9,000 views on this video on this channel here where you discuss this one particular case that happened. Um, but let's let's go from the beginning. You're on your way. You're leaving. You leave Massachusetts. You're on your way driving to Long Island. I forget the club you were trying to get to. Studio 54. That's right. Studio 54. You're on your way there. And what time of year was this? It, it would have been late summer, um, fall, possibly. I, yeah. I don't I don't recall the exact I should have taken better notes, but I didn't. Yeah. And, you know, I thought about a couple of things. You're on the I-95 corridor. You're heading south toward Long, toward Long Island. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you would, um, I mean, I'll just ask you the questions as we land on a couple of sure. different parts of this. But if you would, just uh, let's hear that story one more time again. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh Let's see. Okay, so we're getting, we're approaching, we're a few miles out from the Mystic, Connecticut off ramp. Yeah, hang on just one minute. I'm sorry. Sure. Yeah. Can you give a, you said you were about 17, if I remember right. So approximately so, what year was this? 17 and a half. Yeah. 1978, 79. Yeah. 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 You're asking me to think quickly, and I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not good at that. I, I right. just sit down with a pencil. No, um, I, I do remember I had a 67 Thunderbird. Ooh, nice. Yep, with a, yeah. a Pioneer Super Tuner deck. So <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a great machine. Anyway, yeah. we're, so we're going, my girlfriend and I are heading down I-95. Um, and it was, I'd, I'd say that the sun had set maybe f 30 minutes prior to that. It was very windy. Uh, you could see the clouds briskly moving across the horizon. You could see the the moonlight in the background, it was the clouds were really briskly rushing along. And uh, as I said before, it off to our left, heading heading back towards Providence, it looked like a, you know, any jetliner coming coming through the clouds. And it uh, when it finally broke through the clouds, it was 
much it seemed much larger than a, than a jetliner and i thought that it was it was too low to be flying to be honest with you i thought if that plane is going to Je green state airport it's it's way too low mm -hmm. at the, by this time to get there because it looked like a jetliner that was almost ready to land hmm. Uh, the sky lit up, the ground lit up for miles on both sides of the highway. It, it looked like uh, early morning. It was so bright. Now, it, is this at the t when this happened, is that when you pulled over to the side? No, not, not yet. No, not yet. Oh, okay. Not by then. Um, but, it, but everything started to brighten up. And, and, I, and I said to my girlfriend, I said, I think that's going to crash. It's just too, you know, it's too low. And. When I said that, there was a, a, a row of very old growth pine trees. I'm thinking they were pine anyway. Mm -hmm. um, the the object just stopped over them. It froze right there. It was no longer flying towards us. Mm. And as we approached, as we approached it, you could see the tops of the trees literally bending over. In, in different directions, like there was a, there was an enormous downdraft of some kind or something forcing the tops of the trees down as it just sat there. There were no blinking lights. Mm -hmm. this, was, um, this was another thing I think I forgot to mention. There were no blinking lights on this. But but there was a but it was bright. Something was very bright. It, it was very bright. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember looking off to the to the left and right, and, and I could see the fields on both sides all the way until they vanished into the horizon, you know, on both sides of the highway. It was that bright. Hmm. I'm not going to say it was daylight. It wasn't 12 noon, but it was bright enough to see all the trees in the fields and de some details in the distance. So um, at this point, we're, we're still traveling towards it because now I'm, now I'm really curious what's going on here. And as other cars started to pull over, I decided that that's what we would do too. And not, that we were probably a quarter of a mile now from it, maybe a little bit less. So is it forward of you? About yeah, yes, of you? forward and to the, it was on the opposite side of the northbound highway. So to, the, to the left. To the left, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we pulled over along with the other cars in front of us. And... We sat there briefly looking at this, and as I said before, the next, the next thing. Well, let me describe a little bit more about the craft. So, so the craft had the craft had was shaped sort of like the the center of a compass. It had it had four points, four long arms coming off. It had a a, a segmented undersection. It was a like a solid bottom, and then above that there was a a row of lights of, of, uh, amber sort of yellowish orange portal type lights. Hmm. And above that was a classic dome, but not round sort of almost squared off a little bit. Okay. Almost pyramidal, if you will, but flat and then down tapered down at the, at the ends of, of the four, uh, arms, there was, there were, there were white, there were white balls attached by what looked like a metal rod. Now I, I can, I'm thinking now 
that the the only way that I really saw that was was during the second half of the of the encounter, which which was when we're sitting there looking at it. The, the the next thing we remember, I remember, was that we were we were then looking up through the windshield of the vehicle at the underside of the. So it it, it blinked another blinking thing right over you. It just boom. Didn't and see did it. Say, was this thing so big that it was over other cars as well that were pulled it, over? It was enormous. It was bigger than any. It was bigger than any jetliner. Certainly, it was, yeah. it was huge. Yeah. Now let me ask you this, um, yeah. because I know you're an artist, <laughs> and but and that makes you weird already. <laughs> no, we're we're pre-recording. Is there a way you can do a drawing of this and uh, send it to me, and I will put it in the show notes? Any type of sketch. You don't have to be. I know how your your paintings are perfection, but just what you can remember. I I, I tried to do a painting of it, and I and I threw it away. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was like no that's that's not it um, okay well if it's too difficult i, I understand no, i can i can try to knock something out quickly just to yeah i'm not much of a i'm a terrible draftsman i'm terrible at sketching and i know you're supposed to be a great sketcher to be a great painter but i just work better with it with paint yeah i'm exactly the same way so i, I know exactly sketching. what you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah. but uh yeah well, i'll yeah I'll, I'll put do something the second one will be better, I promise. <laughs> so it was okay. So you want me to continue? Yeah, yeah. So this thing was directly overhead you. Well, it was. It wasn't directly. It was out the out the window. It was a little bit. You know, it was. But it was certainly upon us, if you will. It was very close, off to the right. Now it was on the other side of the highway, and that's when we were able to see more more detail. These these lights being attached by like a rod. Now, when when you're talking about this thing being over to the left, was there anyone on the northbound side that you saw pulled over? I didn't see them pulling over. Mm, interesting. I saw them just driving, moving away. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that was what they wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so getting back to this thing is over. You're looking up through your windshield at it, mm -hmm. and that and that row of and that row of portals that we saw, we saw um, a, a few uh, heads and shoulders that, that up in there, and if you will, I can't remember how many. There there could have been a lot of them but i don't i only focused on a few in in the middle towards the center now did you see any like sign of movement of any kind or just like silhouettes just silhouettes mm -hmm. yeah just silhouettes and would it would can you describe it at all what you were you know the shapes was it like a human type shape yeah just human you know uh human basic facial face and shoulders I, I would have i would have said human humanoid ish mm -hmm. um not I, you know they i'm not going to associate that with it's there was a you know was a diamond shaped and did they have big eyes and all i can say is they were just a, there was just a silhouette of of individuals i don't know 
any more than that, like any detail of what they looked like from what, from that distance too. It, I guess any, you could, you could maybe put a chimpanzee up in there and you, it would look like a person behind a, a fogged out sort of glass. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. If it has a head and shoulders, you, you're going to say, Oh, that's a person. That's an individual. Yeah. Yeah. So you're looking up at it. They, it, it, do they appear to be like, I mean, I don't, I'm trying to picture the windows. Are they at an angle? Does it look like they're looking, they're looking down at you? Or is it a down or is it over at? It's almost, it's, it's almost just a slightly above and they were looking down cause they were, they, well, they were in the, in the, in the, in the air. So they were yeah. looking down. But it was at it wasn't that a very a super steep angle. It was the craft was quite low. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so what what is what happens through this whole thing? And and can you also have an idea of how long this whole thing has happened so far, time wise? Was this a, a minute, two minutes, three minutes? Up to this point? Yeah. Um Three minutes is three minutes is fair, I think. Mm-hmm. Three or four mm-hmm. minutes, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at so at this time, I, I I looked over. My my girlfriend was just sort of staring straight ahead. We weren't talking. Um, I was. We're looking up at this, and that's when I heard in my head. Don't be afraid. We're just we're just here to observe you or look at you. We're just looking at you. Hmm. I, I I drove away that evening, and the next day and then the days after, I, I I felt like it was a tour bus. If that makes any sense, uh, yeah, it felt like a, a tour. We were being observed by a tour bus, hmm. Hmm. As, as opposed to being a scientific exploration of yeah. those of those curious little creatures running around in that blue marble. I don't feel like we're they were there to probe us in any way or get it get into any more detail other than hey these are cool look at those, hmm. you know yeah yeah so and and then uh, and then I uh, the craft moved <laughs> it it was back over the treetops again exactly it, about exactly where it was most exactly where it was yeah didn't see it go there just. Didn't, was there and then it was back over there again and um that's when it's that's when it just started to sort of drift slowly to to from my from my vantage point to the left across the treetops and then started heading back in a backwards trajectory till it started getting smaller and smaller and then at one point it just went whoosh gone it just accelerated out of view and it, it was nighttime again the, the daylight was night. It was nighttime. Gone. Wow that that the daylight thing is really something else. That it, it is because I I I racked my brains trying to figure out where all of that light came from because the, it wasn't blinding light. The the, uh, the 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 balls of light on the ends of the the craft were they were sort of soft. They were like soft white light bulbs, like spheres. Yeah. Yeah, I still don't know. Well, the moon was out that night. In all fairness, the, the moon was out. And then 
but it's still it's still got too bright in my opinion hmm. for the object to have thrown that much light in all those directions all at once it just seems yeah. seems unattainable for us anyway you know yeah so now let's uh let's see what what happens after so the object goes away yeah this is my favorite part of the story. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there were, I guess it was the galactic ice cream truck. So, <laughs> so as, you know, it got dark again, and I st- everybody started picking up speed off of, the, uh, off of the breakdown lane. And I looked over at my girlfriend, and I said, it's going to be all right. We'll get an ice cream. Mm. So we headed another mile or two. I'm guessing it was could have been three. I don't know. Uh, and the exit came up to, uh, to, to get off at mystic. And I, every car in front of me took the exit, every single car hmm. said, okay, you know, I guess that could happen. And we get off the exit and right across the street on the opposite side of the, of the highway. If I remember properly, there's, there was a Howard and Johnson's and every single car went to Howard and Johnson's. And I think I mentioned before, one of the strangest aspects of this for me is still how every everyone got out of their car at about the same, you know, we all pulled into parking lots and into parking spaces and everyone got out and we were all just kind of like slowly just kind of drifting across the parking lot. Nobody was really talking to anybody else, just amongst mm-hmm. themselves. You'd hear murmuring going on. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really wanted to talk about it. You know, this was a long time ago. It wasn't something I never would have told this story a long time ago, ever. Yeah. But this the stigma has sort of been lifted. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. Quote unquote legitimate people have now said not only have we seen them, but it's now acceptable for an ordinary mook to come out and say, Well, here's what happened. So right. But back then, we just walk across. We walked across the parking lot, went into Howard Johnson's. We sat at the counter. My girl and I sat at the counter on the stools, and there was every the other people. As far as I remember, took took tables. There was a gentleman sitting next to me, uh, and he had a glass of water, and he was just staring off into the kitchen area. And I still remember what he looks like. This is this is strange that, that I remember this man so well. He was about thirty five, balding, wearing a gray, uh, a, a, a like a tan windbreaker, just sitting there, just holding his water. And we looked we looked at each other, and he looked me in the eyes and he said, "Did you see them?" Hmm. I knew exactly what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah, I, I did, and. Uh, we had a, we had a conversation about strange things that have happened in our lives mm-hmm. to, to add to that experience, and that and that that I'm afraid is the period on the end of the sentence, of the, the the paragraph, because that's the story. That's that's all I have. Yeah, but, it's um. Well, there's always the personal aftermath, but I, I, it is too bad that you you know you did not. At the time, who would have ever thought of this? But want to talk to all the people that came into the Howard Johnsons, and you know, share share the story. What did you see, and what did did you see? What I saw, and you know, and all that. When 
when this, this guy that you sat next to, he didn't go into any more detail or anything else about it. Just did you see them? And that was it. Well, we, we talked a little bit about what we saw. Yeah. But then we went off onto tangents, other subjects, you know, to regarding the other rabbit holes that, that we had been down. And yeah. So, yeah. So, all right, your personal aftermath, your girlfriend and you, um, did you two talk about it? Or was this one of these things where I think I remember you saying something about you spoke to your brother or something? Her, her brother, the, the her day, brother. yeah, well, the next day we, we yeah. told her brother. And then I've, I've told maybe a dozen people in 40 something years. Yeah. And at so at the time you told her brother and... Did he think you both were nuts or? Yep. He did. Yeah. Certifiable. Yeah. And how about other times you've told, you said you've told this story a dozen times over the years. What's your experience been like? Are people, the people that know you, they must believe you. Yeah, well, yeah. Either that or they're being polite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, I, you can't believe, you can't believe these things. Yeah. There, there is always always a shadow of a doubt yeah um, it, it doesn't matter who's telling the story i i listen to uh you know commander favor and i listen to it doesn't matter who's telling the story if you didn't have the experience yourself and and, and sense it in, in the only way each one of us can you can't believe it a hundred percent we're just yeah. we're wired that way yeah yeah um how about your girlfriend and you, did you talk about it much afterward? No. no. We didn't even, no, I don't even remember speaking with her about it on the way back from Long Island that night. Yeah, which is another thing that's not unusual. Uh, a lot of people will say that they, they go through this real traumatic encounter and then they go to bed and not talk about it. You know, there are things like that that you it, hear. It, that's exactly the way it happened. And that's why you asked me about the encounter when I was nine and I saw it with my family. We didn't talk about it. My mother was insistent that it was a UFO, but we didn't talk about it. The next day came and the day after we just went about our our lives and did what we did. Nobody brought it up anymore. So this is only a few years after your mother had that unusual thing happen to her. Did you talk to her right away about this? Because you were about fifteen then, you're about seventeen now. I think I, I think I told her about it, but I, I honestly can't tell you with a hundred percent, you know, uh, conviction that that I have sat down and had a discussion with her about it. We've just always known. My my mother and I, you know, we've we've just always known that there's that there that this is going on and that it's much. Uh, it's a very mysterious subject, and we didn't. We just never sat down and scratched our heads and said, "Gee, I wonder what's going on here." You know, just we just always accepted that it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a fantastic story. Um, I loved hearing you. You know, tell it again. It's uh, there's no. <laughs> you know, a lot of times people say, "Well, they didn't tell the same story twice," but it's basically the same story with just a couple of added questions that I had um and i'm trying to remember i think i might have asked you this but um there was no you didn't notice any like time difference or anything like that 
Uh, uh, no, but if I know, uh, you know, when when did we get back versus when we left? Did I chart out the miles? Try to fi- you know configure yeah. what? The, but but I would like to, and I know that's not why I'm here for you today. But but when you say time difference, I, I just want to throw in my two cents. Yeah. If I if I could. Yeah. That regardless of what these what, what this is what what these uh, objects are what they're not you know it's apparent to me that they are in they're in absolute and complete control of the narrative yes whatever their objectives are yeah they only we only see what they want us to yes when they want us to yeah and they control they control the set Mm-hmm. But beyond that, they control. Apparently, they control time and space, or at least the way we perceive it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I don't have any other explanation for it being here and then being here. Or my mother sees it here a second later; it's behind her. Mm. So. Yeah, with no, I mean, to, to elaborate on that, there's never a sonic boom. This happens nope. all the time. No, nope. there's there's not any like say that thing showed up right next to your mother. She never felt a breeze or like any type of object that would move that fast would be, you know, knocking the shutters off the house, you know, type of thing. Nothing. Right. Right. And no noise. There was no noise with your mother. Right. Or was there? No, there was no noise. No sound at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, are, the question is, whether are they living organisms or are they ro- robots that have been assembled or androids to, to fly these objects, to explore? You know, I, I can't imagine anything surviving the, the kind of speeds that. Yeah. I mean, e- even e- e- even for us, the only life form that has ever prospered at all in space not prospered but survived have been reptiles you know all the experiments that have been done with every life form that they can get their hands on to, to circle the planet in in their controlled laboratories only reptiles have been able to endure the length of time and space without cell degeneration hmm. yeah but you know you might have a point there's a number of people that think that there's some type of time dilation space-time dilation, perhaps how they travel, you know, of how they're able to, you know, maybe there's something in physics we haven't figured out that they have, that they can do this type of thing with. Uh, But it's, you know, it's really, it's a fascinating idea and something that keeps me really, you know, interested in this topic. One, One other question, would you ever consider doing any type of regression on the whole thing to see if there's hypnotic regression to see if there's anything you may recover that you're, you kind of tucked away and not, not aware of. Uh, To be honest, I've never even thought about it. Yeah. I've never even thought about it. Yeah. Well, I'm not not trusting of a lot of things, Mark. Yeah. And I understand while there's a lot of leading going and a lot, I happen to know someone that's, that is very, very cautious and she's, She's a 30-year professional in um, in uh, social work and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. she really 
understands there's totally wrong ways that people have done things. Anyway, just a thought. It could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. There may be, you know, and it's not it's not any magic. You know, that's the mystery. A lot of people think there's some type of magic. No, it just helps you relax and helps you, like, understand more of something you may have pushed away a little. That's all, you know. But, uh, but anyway, uh, Albert, it's been really amazing. I, I think this was a really good idea to have you on. And I really appreciate um, a very, I consider you a very credible witness. And I, I really, uh, and I love your artwork too. Thank you, Martin. Thank yeah. you very much for having me. I'm, yeah, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So you take care and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. You too. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. So next week we have Tom King coming up on. He's going to be talking. That show will be live and he'll be talking about the Phoenix Lights. So you're going to want to check that out right here at uh, the same time as usual next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.